Lime often will, it's called the great imitator. I like to call it the great instigator too, because it screws up a lot of stuff, but a lot of times it goes and hides and the primary problem is other than Lime. So we need to treat the Lime at some point, but listen to your docs when they're asking you to do the other things, as long as it makes sense based on what you have, because doing all these other things actually allows your body to regain its own ability to heal itself and then go after the Lyme better so that when you're doing sort of Lyme proper treatment, it actually works better. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Tom Moorcroft. I'm so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. Your expertise is in a field that is like one of my worst nightmares. It's almost like the boogeyman in my life. So welcome to Muscle Medicine. I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I sometimes feel the same way about it. Like, you know, the boogeyman or I I say like I'm in the X-Files, but you know, yeah, it's crazy, but I'm glad we're having a chance to, to chat about all this. Yeah. Can you give us like a quick snapshot of your background? Yeah, sure. You know, I just remember growing up being a kid who loved to play outside and any opportunity to go do crazy stuff, I would do it. And in college, I was on an out, you know, on a, like an outing club trip and got injured because there was lack of good leadership. And I kind of, when I got hurt, I was like, man, this could have been prevented. And so I was like, how do you fix that? And I was like, I didn't know. So I went to study wilderness medicine and it was kind of about prevention and then applying common sense in unknown terrain, right? Because we're away from sort of the emergency room setting and the ambulance. You might be days away from things. So we had to think differently. And I really liked that because it was really a common sense approach with the goal of always being prevention. And so as I, I just got so hooked on it, because I was playing outside and, I, and, and it works. Like imagine that if you, if you actually do the things ahead of time to prevent an illness, it actually, you could prevent a lot of problems. And if something happened, I was prepared. But what I realized was I didn't have enough training. Like, because it was like, how often do you get to see a disaster in a wilderness situation? Not too much. So I, I basically started on the ambulance squad and then I worked, started working in the emergency room. And I was like, wow, I can really make a big impact on people's lives here because when things are not going so well, I tend to stay calm and and try to look at the big picture and put perspective in. And so I just really found a little niche there. And then I went to medical school and sort of, you know, figured that medicine wasn't going the way I wanted it to, to go. And I didn't know anything about chiropractors other than like they crack necks. I didn't know anything about naturopathic medicine at all because that's all I'd been exposed to. And I was like, I got to recreate the whole wheel. And I went to osteopathic school and it was like amazing that other people thought like I did. And so I was exposed to more of this, you know. Like I'm not alone in the world. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. It was interesting too, because as I started going through the process though, I was having some difficulty remembering things. And, Hmm. And it was like, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you're a little fish in a big pond. I'm like, no, I can't do simple math in my head. I mean, <laughs> it's not that I'm in medical school. I, I understand the rigors. And um, towards the end of medical school, I was in, I was doing a rotation in osteopathic manipulation because I was very interested in that. 
And the people who I was studying with were seeing all these people and treating them for Lyme disease and these co-infections. And I'd never really heard about Lyme other than the way norm, like we get taught. It's like you get a rash, three, you get some summer flu, you get three weeks of antibiotics and you're good to go. And so I, by the end of the first day, I'm like, whatever these people you're seeing have, I think I have it too. Could you please draw my blood? Yeah. You know, and a couple of weeks later, I found out I had Lyme and babesiosis. And I remember back when I was teaching outdoor education, you know, like eight years before that at the Cary Institute, it was like, I, I got a rash. I got treated for Lyme for 10 days. And I remember laying on the floor for, for like four days, alternating sweats and chills in July. And I was like, there's something not right here, but then I was okay. But then over that eight year period, it just sort of my, you know, muscles started to hurt. My bones started to hurt. And then my brain started to go. And, you know, the long and the short of the story is once they appropriately diagnosed me and we started treatment, it took a couple of years, but got back to completely normal brain works better than I can ever remember it working. But it was like, they were willing to look at all the possibilities. And so when I started my practice, I wasn't planning to do Lyme disease, but lots of people in Connecticut come in with it. And, and I was just like, wow, I was open to looking at it. And then I just found that there are a lot of people who are suffering and who weren't being fully treated. So I started working with them. You're like the epicenter of it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and a lot of people talk about like, it's not if you're going to get it, especially like on the East coast now, it's when are you like, it's when. Right. And this totally goes back to the sort of that wilderness medicine ideal in my brain, which is like, let's prevent it. Right. So we may, we can do the best we can to not get bitten by a tick. Cause that's how you're going to get it. You know, 99 bazillion times out of a bazillion, you know, it's like almost exclusively tick bite related. But the thing is a lot of people respond really well to if they get diagnosed early and they, and they get treated early, they do well, but there's this small subset of people who don't. And what I'm always trying to talk to my folks about once they get better, or if they happen to have, you know, if I'm lecturing to the public, I'm like, do everything you can to have your body working optimally before you get sick. Yeah. Don't start trying to get bet, you know, get on the health wagon after you're sick. I mean, yeah. you should do that too, but like, let's start off at a different place where we're optimizing our potential so that when we do get exposed to infections, it's less likely that we're going to have this chronic long lasting problem. Yeah, totally. I want to get back to that, yeah. but I would love if you just kind of took it through like a step-by-step -step process. So like, let's say someone finds a tick on them. And then they have the freak out, which would be my initial reaction. <laughs> and then the old kind of way to deal with it was like watch and wait and right. see if you get a bullseye and see if you get Lyme's disease. Is that something that you would recommend or is there like a better way? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is not to freak out. The second thing is to know how to remove the tick because Ooh, it can yeah. help decrease your risk of transmission, right? So there's those tick tweezers with the little magnifying glass and someone with the V notches. Anything that can allow you to get right under the mouth parts as close to the skin as possible and then just lift straight up and hold. Because the, the, the tick mouth parts are barbed almost like a fish hook, but there's many of them. So if we just rip it out, we're likely to leave some in there. And then there's also like the, when we were kids, you know, my dad used to use a cigarette to burn it off the dog. Totally not a good idea. And <laughs> 
it's, there's essential oils and these twisting methods. And my concern with those are that the spirochetes, that, the bacteria that give you Lyme are usually in the, in the gut of the, the tick and they have to swim literally as it's feeding on you. They have to swim into you. So there is some evidence that it could be in the, the salivary glands, but primarily it's in the gut. And so we don't want to do anything to irritate the tick. And, you know, because basically if we try to piss off the tick to get it to eject itself, it will, but it can only eject by emptying its stomach contents to kind of jet propulse itself. So you don't want to irritate the tick. You just want to lift and wait. And some people have, you know, sometimes you have to wait, you know, a minute and a half or two if it's really in there, but it will release. And then afterwards, it's good to save the tick and find out what it is. You know, and some people will send in for tick testing, others won't. There's some studies showing that some people can figure out how long it's been attached and not. It's hard if you're not trained in it, but the bottom line is with the nymph tick, which is the really small poppy seed deer tick that primarily transmits Lyme, they feed for about four days and then that the adult feeds for five. The longer they're attached to you, the worse it gets. So on day one, it might be less than 5% transmission rate, but on day four, it could be as much as 95%. Mm. So the, the thinner the tick is, the flatter it is, the better. But there is evidence that if the tick has fed at all, you can get Lyme. It's, again, less in, in under a day, but it's still possible. Yeah. So when you see that it's on you, potentially, yep. you would know it was feeding because it would be like engorged. Right, right. Yeah. So it kind of almost like, so you have this little flat tick and then it starts to fill up with blood and it starts to, so it almost gets that dark gray and the bell, the, the back end of it expands a little bit. Yeah. Um, the important thing is to also try to figure out what tick it is because the tick that we're describing is the deer tick, which transmits Lyme babesiosis, Powassan virus, Borrelia mimotoi, and a few other things. But a lot of people are also seeing like dog ticks, you know, with a lot of the brown with those white, whitish cream speckles on the back. Mm. Those transmit other things. And at a much lower rate though, too. So they uh, transmit okay. like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And then like the Lone Star tick, the one with the big white, like, like little dot on the back transmits or Lickia and some other stuff. The thing about those are the, the amount of infection in them is lower and they're also much bigger. So we tend to find them. Got it. And so we think, yeah. Yeah. So if you were going to send a tick in mm-hmm. to get, to figure out if it has Lyme's disease and these co-infections, where would you send it to? I generally use a place called tickreport.com. It's out of the university of, it's a UMass Amherst. And so they do a really good job. They have a quick turnaround. So it's a couple days from the time they get it, which is usually for those of us in New York and Connecticut, like a day, you know. Mm. Now, a lot of places, your local state agricultural department may do it. A lot of times they'll only check for Lyme and not some of the other infections. But one of the most important parts about the tick test is not so much what's what they find in the tick because they're, I mean, that's very helpful, but also being sure of the identity of the tick because you're not getting Lyme disease from a deer, a dog tick, right? And so you're, and you're not going to get Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a dog tick. So if you don't know what it is and your doctor's not sure, that way you have a scientist who can look at it. And certainly I like knowing what's in the tick because if there's nothing in the tick, it's unlikely that you've gotten something from it (laughs) also. Yeah. I feel like most people don't, if they do get blood work to test for Lyme's disease, oftentimes 
they're not getting co-infections checked. Is that right. true? Yeah. Kind of depends on who looks at it. You know, I certainly like to check for co-infections because I see them and I, and I try to order them based upon what tick someone got bit by. The other thing with testing though, is a lot of people do it too early, believe it or not. So like, let's say in the first week or two after a tick bite, a lot of times people will like have a tick bite and then they'll get, they'll start to see a rash. Mm. And then they go to their doctor and like, hey, this looks like Lyme disease and you're starting to have some joint pain. Let me do the blood work and here's your medicine. And then two days later, the screening test comes back negative and they stop the medicine. Mm. And the problem there is if you have symptoms, if you're in an area where it's highly endemic, where there's a lot of Lyme, which in our area there is, and then you start to get a rash or other symptoms, then that's diagnostic of Lyme disease. You don't even need the blood test because early on the antibodies don't form that we're testing. So in that case, I've seen people acutely and, and I might do the antibody test so I have an understanding of where they're at, but I also do DNA testing to help because that's a time where you're likely to catch it because the DNA is actually looking for the Lyme disease rather than your standard test, which is looking for how you're responding to it. Mm. Um, but again, if you have symptoms or you have this erythema migrans rash, which a lot of people call the bullseye rash, you have Lyme disease and you don't really need to do the testing except if you want to look for co-infections. Right. Is there an advantage to taking more antibiotics than what is like the CDC standard of dioxycycline cyclone? Yeah. So if you are infected, the most important thing to do is to get early diagnosis and treatment. And there are a lot of people who do really well with three weeks of doxycycline. However, there are a bunch of people who don't do as well as also. And in sort of in the research, people quote 20 to 30% of people frequently. I mean, it's a high number of people. That's like 70%, you know, that's like a 30% treatment failure. I mean, that's pretty bad. But when we look at the evidence that's out there, the important thing to understand is if you infect a monkey for four months and then you treat it with a month of doxycycline, their, their standard like antibody test will become negative most of the time. But if you sacrifice the animal and study tissue to really look where Lyme goes, which is deep in the tissue, you find that all of them are still infected. And if you take a monkey and infect it for six months and you treat it with a month of IV antibiotics and then two months of that doxycycline and you do the same thing, the blood tests are negative, but when you look at tissue samples, like you, I think the cure rate is 27% mm. after three months. So, so what we're studying here is four to six months of infection, then treatment. We don't have really good animal models yet shorter than that. We do know that if you infect a mouse and you treat it for 20 days immediately as a preventive, that works 100% of the time for Lyme disease and anaplasmosis. So somewhere between immediately treating and four months, we have to figure out what to do. And I generally, the people I see in my practice generally were the ones who didn't do well on the 10 to 21 days of doxycycline or more commonly didn't get it you know, at all. And, and sort of they found out like a year later and that's where you run into some more of this persistence of disease. For someone who's found a tick on them and they don't have the rash and they haven't sent it in, would you do like a preemptive round of yeah. antibiotics? Yeah. So I have the discussion about prophylactic treatment and it's always about, I look at evidence-based medicine, you know, it's three yeah. main things. What is the best medical evidence we have out there? 
what are is my experience as a clinician and what are the patient's preferences based upon knowing my experience and the best literature. And I, and we have conversations and people who have the higher, you know, generally I will offer preventive treatments to people. Um, but we go through a long discussion of the risk, the potential benefits and the potential risks. Most of my patients who have had Lyme before and they're better call up and they're like, I want to get the treatment because I know that three weeks of doxycycline with a probiotic and then maybe, you know, another month of probiotic to get your, make sure your gut's in good shape is usually relatively low risk, especially if they've had those antibiotics before. And we know that, you know, if I have acne and I go to the dermatologist, I'll often get doxycycline or minocycline for my acne for months or years. And we don't seem to have a problem with that. So, (laughs) and we know those people do really well. So in the end, we have a conversation about it. And I stay in really close touch with these folks. If they develop any symptoms, they call. If they're doing a three-week preventive treatment, because like you said earlier, watch and wait is not a primary preventive measure. Because if we wait, if we watch and wait, we've chosen not to do prophylactic or preventive treatment because by the time I know you have something, you already have. I mean, by definition, you're waiting to see if you get sick. So, but we have that conversation and some people are okay, especially if it's a sort of a, an adult tick that they see, they, they're pretty sure they know when it bit them. Any yeah. tick that's engorged, I gen, you know, it's starting to feed. I generally, you know, again, patient, people have their own preferences, but I generally recommend people do a course of antibiotic to prevent that. Is there an age limit to that? So for example, for people who have kids like myself, like my four-year-old and we go to fire Island and there's like deer Uh everywhere and you can see engorged ticks all over them. Ah, Right. Right. (laughs) It's like totally freaks me out, but I love it there. (laughs) So we still go. Let's say I found a tick on him. Should I be doing like a, well, Well, should I consider a prophylactic round? Yeah. Well, so the best evidence that we have, like I said, is in, is in these mice. I mean, there is this whole idea of doing a double dose of doxycycline for children over eight one time. And that's a really flawed study because they're trying to prevent the rash, not Lyme. And some people in the study got Lyme. Mm-hmm. So just want to point out that I, I don't really buy that that's solid science that we should be following. So when I do do the treatments, it's three or four weeks. The question though is we don't really know. So in my practice, I do offer it to kids. I don't give them doxycycline if they're four because that's or 10 months or whatever, because that's not appropriate. But we are, I have to disclose, hey, we don't really know the answer because the science hasn't done it, the, the research. But the, the other thing that's really nice too is being an osteopathic physician who's always been more sort of drawn to, can I prevent things? I've studied a lot of functional medicine and do a lot of natural treatments. We do also see fairly good success with herbal treatments as well. Again, when I talk about that, it's like, hey, well, that's not been studied. I know a ton of naturopaths and chiropractors and osteopaths and MDs who do it all the time. I do it all the time, but we don't have a paper to back it up. So I basically, we yeah, I would prophylax anybody who sort of, you know, we go through the process and they're like, I would like to make sure I prevent this. And then we can talk about the treatment options of which there's, there's a bunch. Yeah. So this might be a segue into how to kind of optimize. And 
one of my, I was like pulling all my friends who had Lyme <laughs> disease, like, Hey, what questions would you want me to ask? And I think this is a good segue because one of my dear friends has had Lyme disease multiple times. He's had the rash. He loves to go camping upstate, like drive his uh-huh. motorcycle and go camping. And he does the, the rounds of antibiotics. And now he's kind of like, Hey, if I feel tired or off, Am I having residual Lyme? Am I just like tired because I work hard in New York City? Can there right. be like a permanent damage from the Lyme disease that I've had multiple times? Those are all great questions because I would say it could be all of those or some all. combination, totally. right? So that's the thing. I mean, I think one of the biggest criticisms in the treatment of persistent Lyme disease is people aren't looking for the other possible causes of the symptoms. And I personally go crazy trying to find out every, I like, I, I get introduced, like I'm lecturing, you know, frequently and people are like, this is Dr. Moorcroft. He's a Lyme expert. And I'm like, hi, my name is Tom. I'm not a Lyme expert. I'm a physician who has an expert, who's an expert in, you know, in human health. And I have an expertise in Lyme and co-infections because of what I do frequently and what I enjoy studying. And I think it's different because my goal is not to find out what you, your friend has when he comes to see me, what, what my you know, or not to, to say you have persistent Lyme, but it's actually to figure out what he really has. And what I found frequently is the, the things that I've had people referred to me who have hypothyroidism, they have a TSH of 97 Oof. And, they have, yeah, and they have brain fog, fatigue and joint pain, but they went to their doctor saying, I think I have Lyme disease. And the guy's like, well, I did the test. You don't have Lyme, but they, they because of the polarization of Lyme, they didn't even look at thyroid. And so I always go back to looking at the common things and, and, and what are symptoms specific. And starting out, when you look at persistence of Lyme, one of the things we notice is that Lyme will, loves to mess up tissue. It likes to get in the brain and cause problems. It likes to get in the muscles. It likes to get into the gut. And so a lot of the things I see commonly are dysregulation of sleep, dysregulation of like, you know, your, the autonomic nervous system where you can control your temperature and your heart rate. And we see a lot of GI stuff. So a lot of what I have people do is while we're doing, while we're working them up, while we're doing treatment, and if it's a, now you're better and we want to make sure you stay better or on the nice chance that I get somebody who's healthy and just wants to stay that way, let's make sure your sleep is optimized. Let's make sure your diet is where it needs to be for you. Make sure that, you know, you're de-stressing and exercising and all the basic stuff that I think most docs are doing and other healthcare practitioners. But sleep is a huge one because of the brain detoxification that goes along that is, you know, happens when we're in deep sleep. And we also know that Lyme disease, it's very interesting. If you look at polyvagal theory. I just interviewed Stephen Porges. Did you really? He was amazing. Yeah. So, so that is so cool. So it's very interesting because I see a lot of patients, I like, I'm very attuned to what's going on. And there's days where you get so frustrated where you're like, could you please get out of your own way? And this is where a lot of the docs that see people with chronic disease are like, oh, it's all in their head. It's this or that. And I'm like, no, it's like they're locked in a frozen state and they're subdiaphragmatic, dorsal vagal. They, they can't, they can't get out of it. And it's like, so Whenever I have the opportunity to lecture, I'm always talking about the gut-brain interaction and getting the gut and the heart talking together through the brain via the vagus because 
it's so critical to be able to be in, it, it, like, it's really interesting. If you look at the frozen helpless person in Porges's model, they pull away. Their, their gaze is always downward. They're, they're numb and they socially withdraw. And this is what all my people do. And uh, not all of them, but <laughs> lots of them. Yeah. And you want to move them in that direction of reconnecting in a positive way. So we have a lot of support groups, but they don't give a lot of positive support. And there are the, the ones that give positive support, you'll see their members just helping each other and getting better. And the stories of improvement are way better than some of the other places. And I think it's because it starts to allow people to get that dorsum ventral vagus to communicate better. And, you know, I have people do things like meditation, like the breath. I know that you, you've talked to other folks who just even simple breathing exercises. We do a lot of heart rate variability training, you know, like heart math and other things to get people to just t spend five minutes calming their nervous system down, but also re reconnecting it. And the brain is critical because a lot of people have concurrent, who have Lyme have concurrent infections with Bartonella hensley or other Bartonellas. And the problem is some of the support structures and the essentially the immune cells of the brain that are supposed to fight off these pathogens actually are where Bartonella goes and lives. So the Bartonella goes intracellular into some of these microglia in the brain. And so we have all this chronic inflammation in the brain, but these are the brain cells that are supposed to be attacking the organism. So we have to have methods to tune down brain inflammation, and we can do that nutritionally. We can do that with supplements and medicines, but we can also do a lot of that just by breathing and de-stressing a little bit. So we focus a lot on that, and it's so interesting. I talk about Porges all the time. <laughs> I, I emailed him for a year. Did you really? Consistently. <laughs> That's so great. And then he was oh, like, let's do it. So can good. Can you speak to some of the no one eating habit works for everyone, especially with Lyme. So for example, like Tim Ferriss yep. always talks about how like keto saved his life after he got Lyme disease multiple times. But then uh, you talk to someone else and they're like, I tried keto and I felt like terrible. I felt worse. I love talking about keto because I, I think the number one thing you everybody needs to do is have a plant-based diet, plant-based whole food diet. And I'm, I call myself a recovering vegetarian because when I grew up, London broil was put in the broiler for 25 minutes and it was as hard as a hockey puck when you ate it. So oh, I never oh. ate meat because I, it wasn't cooked right. Yeah. And as I got older, I wasn't feeling as well. And I actually feel better when I, you know, when I eat a plant-based whole food diet that includes meat, particularly red meat. So, but it, which goes in the face because everybody thinks I'm going to say vegan when I say plant-based whole food, right? And it's for me, that works. But what's really interesting is I have found that in persistence of infection, we see things like Lyme disease and yeast does this and strep does it and Bartonella. We talk about biofilm formation. And so biofilms are good. They protect our good bacteria, but they also, other ones can protect the bad bacteria and we can have polymicrobial biofilms that are preventing us from getting better. So like we give the doxy, we kill all that, let, let's say it works and we killed all the infection that was floating around, but we have these persister forms, some of which we call cyst, but a lot of it's biofilm. And these biofilms are primarily fat. So they're this protective layer over the bacteria. And what happens, what I think happens and I've seen is, you know, like when you start keto, people who are just kind of doing keto for weight loss or health typically do like a carb flu thing or, you know, the keto flu when they start. 
you give somebody with Lyme disease a keto diet and they dive right in, more times than not, they're going to explode. They look like a nuclear bomb was dropped on them because they're just, they get, they get carb flu times 10. Oof. And, and if they can push through it, which I wouldn't recommend doing, but if you push through it on the other end of it, they're usually way better. And I've saw this so many times. And then I started having people sort of ease their way into it. Like Mark Sisson talks a lot about doing the preparatory phase to getting into keto. And until you pass the midterm exam, you don't go on to full keto. And I started having people do that. And I saw that they weren't having these huge carb flu situations. And in the long run, they were getting better. And what I think is happening is that the body is really damn smart. And it's actually burning the biofilms, the bad biofilms up when you're going into this process of ketosis. I talked to Dave Asprey about it and he's like, that would be really cool if we studied that. And that was kind of the extent of that. I'm like, well, Dave, if you can help me with that one. I don't know where to start with that. Dave, do you want to fund fund that study? (laughs) Right, right. Dave, can you help us here? But you know, the thing is like when I'm looking at, I'm like, it makes sense, right? If you go keto, we can burn adipose tissue, but it's rocket fuel for the brain, which is the fattiest organ in the body. So we're not burning the brain up, we're helping them. So I find that a lot of people do really well with it if they ease into it. And I think that there is some benefit for this biofilm situation, whether it's a direct attack on it, which is like what my Hollywood movie writer brain would like to to think (laughs) at the moment or something else, it really helps. But again, going back to that, I think the way you you intro this little talk piece here is it really does go back to, we have to find out what is right for someone. So eating more vegetables than processed foods is usually good for everybody, right? And then we have to tweak it. And the other part is like, what are you willing to do for yourself, right? So if you're like, hey, I don't, I'm not that bad and, or I'm not willing, you know, I'm, I feel so bad, I can't give up my Skittles. It's gonna be problematic. So I like to give people actionable steps that they'll actually do. So I'm like, where are you at? So one of the tricks that I've used more recently to really good effect is introduce people to intermittent fasting. And then because it's easy to get them to do it, you know, you're, you're not, if you're sleeping as long as I want you to sleep, which is eight or nine hours. So, so I I force them to sleep a little longer because they want to sleep as much as possible so they can, so that they don't have to fast as long when they're up. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But then the intermittent fasting, once they get closer to that 16 hours of fasting and the eight hours of eating window, we turn on autophagy, which is our natural way of recycling sort of cells that have gone past their lifespan. And they're just, they're using energy, they're creating inflammation, but they're not doing much else. So we can recycle those. But the other thing autophagy does is clear out intracellular pathogens. And Lyme and Bartonella and most of the things that I see are known, well known to be intracellular pathogens. And so when we, when we change our diet a little bit, we start to see that most people are going to decrease their calories a little bit. They're, even if they're going to chow on their, their, their candy or whatever, there's going to be less of it because they're just, they can't handle that much in eight hours. And it's, it's empowering them to actually kill some of these infections on their own. And it, and it promotes your, your body doing its own work. And, and I came from a place where Coca-Cola was like something you drank all day long after you stopped your coffee, uh, you know. And when I wasn't feeling well, I started to change and I did yoga 
before I met those folks. And it started to change my body and help. It didn't get the job done, but it got me really far down the road. And part of it was it made me pay attention to my body more. And I started eating better because I was feeling my yoga was sort of changing my body and saying, hey, you should take better care of yourself. And I find that as people start to intermittent fast more, they start to let go a lot of the junk because they're starting to feel a little better and they're noticing that they have the control over their own healing. Yeah. It's like giving someone a small win that's like really easy to right. integrate. Yeah. And and yeah. I kind of meet them where they're at too, too yeah. right? Because some of them are like, oh, I don't want to change my diet or, you know, I can't do that. I'm like, but you'll be able to, you're, you will help your body get inside of the cells and get rid of the Lyme. And then they're like, oh, I'll do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting because I'm kind of the, of the mindset of like, do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you tell me this, eat this and this, don't eat this and this, it's like, great, let, let's do it game on. But I'm right sure on. so many of the people that see you who have like chronic Lyme infection and, or feel symptoms, they're so in that disassociative, like broken down state that it's yes. hard to kind of like rise to the, the occasion and be like, all right, let's do what it takes. Yeah. It, there's no doubt. And that's, that's where, so when people come in, I, I send them a thing on sleep before they get in. And then a couple of days later, I send them one on, you know, hydration. And then a couple of days later, we get one on EMFs. And so I'm like, let's pick one thing that'll help. Because one of my favorite tips for getting better sleep is to turn your Wi-Fi off at night. Mm. And I would say at least 90% of the people who do it are sleeping better within a week. Let's say hypothetical, <laughs> you live in New York City. Right. And like your neighbor above you on the side and the other side <laughs> also has Wi-Fi. Right, right. No, I hear you. Yeah. It, it's hard, but it, there's a distance component. So if you take your, your, your different EMF meters, the further away you go, the less it is. Yeah. Right. Is there a certain EMF meter you would recommend? Um, well, I, I have a couple. I have one from Germany that I, a friend of mine from Germany gave me, and I don't know how to get that one um, mm-hmm. for millivolts. But there's a tri-field meter, um, and I can send you over the link for it too. Sure. It's just, and it's just cool because like the other day I was hanging out with my daughter, and we were just talking about microwaves because we have one in, our, in the house we moved into because it was built in, but we don't use it, and we don't even plug it in. But a lot of our friends have them, and she was asking about it. And I said, well, there's no real evidence that it destroys the food other than the, 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 the texture and the flavor of it, in my opinion, <laughs> and the rubber. But, you know, everyone's tried to say, hey, look, it's really bad for the food, but we can't find that we've damaged it. I can't imagine making something that's light and fluffy and crisp into rubber is something that's not damaging it. But, you know, what I did was I broke out the, the meter, which looks at, you know, magnetic fields and radio waves. And the mic- when we plug the microwave in, there's a very strong magnetic field right next to it. And I'm assuming that has to do with the technology. But when you turn it on and you watch the electrical fields across the room, it's just like, boom, boom, boom. You see these huge spikes as it's running. And so then we went over to, and she was just mortified. So we went over to the Wi-Fi because I've known people who test it and they look at the Wi-Fi meter and they're like, oh, it's only when you turn it on and it's mm-hmm. connecting. And I'm like, well, that might be true, but that's not been my experience. <laughs> we put the meter down. And again, it's just this pulsing and then the the Wi-Fi is a little more insidious. It'll stop for a little bit and then it pulses a whole bunch and then it goes down. And, and you know, and it's not that these things are bad. We can't get away from them. And, and I think a little bit of exposure is good. But like you said, if you live in New York City, I mean, you can't get away from it. 
So what I try to do is minimize it directly around me as much as I can. And I also sleep on a grounding pad. We have this uh, Locasana grounding pad. It's like sort of one of those earthing pads, like on steroids. It's The whole thing is basically filled with little threads of silver interwoven through the cotton and stuff. And when I plug it in, I can actually take the meter and I have it unplugged and I've got the meter, the millivolts going through me at like 1800 when I'm laying in my bed because of all the, the um, electrical stuff in the wall. If I plug this into the ground and I wait about 30 seconds, I go down to 20 to 40. Wow. From 1800. Yeah. Most experts are saying that below 100 millivolts is really good for sleep. They have done the same testing on that grounding mat uh, for EMF. It's just a little harder because you have to block out everybody else's EMF. I mean, I'm sorry, the Wi-Fi. Yeah. You know, so, and, and, but they've done that in lead. They've made lead rooms and tested it, and it's shown that it blocks the, the Wi-Fi if it's just at Wi-Fi in there. It's really interesting stuff. But I just like, hey, let's make a sleep sanctuary. You know, so I have my grounding pad. I wear my blue light blockers at night. You know, I keep the room cool. I'm not so good at staying off of my electronics late because I'm always doing a last bit of work right before bed. But, totally. you know, but I always do like a heart math or like a or brain tap or something to help, you know, or just heart centered breathing on my own without, you know, a device just to kind of get in that place. And one of the things that I've been recommending to my sort of less sick kind of in the middle people who are stuck but still having issues with their sleep is to grab something like an aura ring or one of the other meters that you can check at night and also turn it on airplane mode. So it's low EMF while you're sleeping. But I've noticed that my heart rate variability dramatically changes if I spend five to 10 minutes before bed focusing on heart centered breathing and just kind of getting more parasympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Such great tips for the people who feel some of these symptoms that would be Lyme's disease potentially, but never saw a tick, never had a rash. Where would you recommend that person start? Because it's confusing, right? Because there's so many things to look at. It's like, look at right. the hormones, look at, is it a, an infection? But for someone who is low energy, is maybe having neurological symptoms, but doesn't know what mm. they are or has been misdiagnosed, where, where should that person, like where, that first step on that journey of kind of, being your own health warrior. Health detective, yeah, health right. Health detective, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that's a hallmark or, or of Lyme and Bartonella in particular is Lyme disease has migratory joint pain associated with it very commonly. It's not really associated with a whole bunch of other things. Um, and so that's a big thing. And also in Bartonella infections, we see people will have migratory neuropathy which I mean, neuropathy is supposed to be breakdown of the nerve. But if you have like pins and needles and, and, and that kind of stuff, numbness and tingling that moves, that might be a clue that it might be more in this realm. I've even seen like tr muscle fasciculations, you know, where the muscles start mm -hmm. moving randomly, but it'll go from to different places. And then outside of that is Dr. Richard Horowitz has a Lyme questionnaire that's helpful and that's available online and it's helpful in diagnosis. It doesn't make the diagnosis, everybody. <laughs> it helps, right? <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. We have tools. It's a good tool. But again, when you talk to your doctor and you say, hey, look, like I have these things, we know that the testing strategies when you go in are not all that good. And we know that the typical two-tier testing that the CDC has recommended in New York State for a really long time 
picks up about 56% of people who are truly positive, meaning it misses almost 50%. Yeah. Right. That's and wild. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> crazy. And there's this new research out of Johns Hopkins because one of the problems are, and this is what, this is where the question becomes difficult because some people, they have classic Lyme, right? They look like they have, it's July, they have summer flu, they have joint pain, muscle pains, they're achy, their their brain and their energy is off. But then there are other people who get Lyme and they're a complete mess from the beginning. And so there's some recent research that came out that shows that, again, they tested antibiotics and most of them don't work well at all. But in the same paper, they were able to inject rapidly reproducing spirochetes. We call it log, you know, the log spirochete, meaning it's exponential growth. This is commonly what we see in strep, right? So strep, you get strep throat, and even if you don't get to the doctor three or four days later, it's better because it's just so metabolically active, it burn itself out. Mm. So in that case, we get kind of typical Lyme, and we have really poor response, in, at least in mice, to the antibiotics. You really need like ceftriaxone to hit that, which is an IV antibiotic that most of us don't get for acute Lyme. But then they were able to take the biofilm microcolony form and stationary sort of very slowly reproducing and persister forms of Lyme and inject those. And when they do that, mice got much more severe arthritis and they developed more chronic symptoms right away. And the researchers proposed persistence of Lyme disease in two ways. One is you get bitten by Lyme, you have normal Lyme, but we missed the diagnosis early and you get treated later on. So that's kind of, most people would agree that's a possibility of getting persistent disease. But then they said there's another one, which is early persistent Lyme disease, which is you get bit by a tick that has these persister forms already and you get persistent disease from the get-go. Mm. And so it's, you know, it's emerging research from a couple months ago, and we have to see, you know, it has to be reproduced, and we have to see it in maybe more monkeys, or it's a mouse model. But it's a good model to understand and describe some of our patients and why they don't look the same as, say, everybody else. And so to know that that's a possibility and that the science is starting to back it up, we can start to hand this to our doctors and say, hey, wait, this might be a possibility. But realistically, we need to, you know, stopping to see somebody who does functional medicine, whether it's a naturopath, a chiropractor, you know, even a potentially a health coach or an MDDO would be the place to start because a lot of them are understanding that Lyme's a possibility and they're also going to look for everything else. You know, the Lyme specialist route is a good one if you can, but at the same time, I like looking for Lyme specialists who do everything and diagnose you with Lyme when that's what you have, not because that's the only thing they do. Yeah. Most of the people I know don't do that. Most of the people I know are like, let's find out what's wrong with you. You know, because who the hell wants Lyme disease? <laughs> like, really? No one. <laughs> no one. No one. I had it. I had Babesia. I don't want it. I don't want anybody to have it. Yeah. As a practitioner for my, you know, myself who sees lots of chronic pain, biomechanical pain, injury, neuropathy, Knowing that Lyme's disease cause joint pain and neurological issues and muscle aches and pains that moves around the body was really important when treating a patient. Because I think in the early days, you know, like 13 years ago when I first started practicing, I just assumed everything was like through this lens of biomechanical injury. And now, like I just saw a woman, she was hiking in Berkeley, California, 
and she came back and, you know, one visit she's like, Oh, I have this like numbness in my hand. And then she came back and she's like, like th- basically the symptoms were moving around. Yeah. And I was like, this is not, this is not right. You need to go get tested for Lyme disease. And then sure enough, and she was like, no, no, no. I was like in Berkeley. Isn't that like an East coast thing? And I was like, well, just go get tested. Yeah. Just double check. And like, sure enough, the test picked up Lyme disease, right. but like my, my younger self or like newer practitioners would have kind of gone down the road of like biomechanical injury, you know? Well, yeah. And that's actually, that's how I got started. I mean, I did a fellowship in osteopathic manipulation and I was just doing osteopathic manual medicine yeah. and I saw somebody and I put my hands on, I was like, this is not structural. There's yeah. a structural component, but man, this person feels different. Mm. And then we started talking and I sent off a Lyme test and, you know, sure enough, it was positive. And then she told one person who told two people, and then that's, I started doing this, but it wasn't even the plan, but it's good to have that other tool, right? In your tool belt to say, Hey, like structurally, does this make sense? So if they come in to see someone who does manual therapy and it, and it makes sense, work it up, you know, do your thing, but if it's not working. And so one of the things I, a, a lot of osteopaths are, are looking at this with um, Lyme, Bartonella and mold. And they're saying, look, I'm treating him and they're not responding the way they should. I mean, the way I was trained is I should in three or four treatments have a good understanding of them moving in a direction. It might, it might be a chronic thing. I might not be able to fix the whole thing, but I should know we're making progress. And when you're treating the same thing over and over and over, or every time they come in, they have something completely different. You might want to start thinking about Lyme disease, right? I mean, it's not yeah. just. Yeah, totally. Where can people find you brick and mortar and online? So brick and mortar, I'm in Berlin, Connecticut. Um, the easiest way to find me is originsofhealth.com. And that will get all the good information. We also are on Facebook and YouTube. And I have a uh, support group for both practitioners and uh, patients on Facebook. So I do practitioner training. Yeah, I'm trying to to do that. For the practitioners who are interested in learning about, one of the big things that comes up is how do you do an effective lab workup without just like spending 80 bazillion dollars? And also, let's not just keep looking for a positive test so that we can prove what we are seeing in the office, like how do you get like an accurate diagnosis? And, you know, I have some materials that I'm happy to share with any of them if they want to reach out through the website, same with patients. So yeah, that's where we're at. And I do a bunch of monthly stuff online uh, with my buddy, Darren Engels out in California to try to keep the naturopathic osteopathic voice in chronic Lyme and mold toxicity. So, and I have to say on your Instagram, was the first picture I've ever seen of like an engorged oh. tick. And I was like, is that like a, like a mushy old raisin? What is that thing? Nope. Sure enough. Engorged tick. My, do- my, my daughter goes, daddy, look what I found next to the dog. Oh. And, I'm like, oh, no. and then she's like, can we take a video of it? And so she videoed it. And I was like, do you mind if I post this? <laughs> that's, if anybody wants to know what an engorged tick is, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's been so informative. I felt like I just kind of like, like boom, 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 question, question from like my collection of questions from I love my, it. my Lyme's disease tick-ridden friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share. Uh, I mean, and I guess the, the, the one thing I want to leave people with is you can get better, right? Yes, I mean, so optimism. many people feel like you can't. And also be open to the fact that Lyme often will, it's called the great imitator. 
I like to call it the great instigator too, because it screws up a lot of stuff, but a lot of times it goes and hides and the primary problem is other than Lyme. So we need to treat the Lyme at some point, but listen to your docs when they're asking you to do the other things, as long as it makes sense based on what you have, because doing all these other things actually allows your body to regain its own ability to heal itself and then go after the Lyme better so that when you're doing sort of Lyme proper treatment, it actually works better because definitely you can get better. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Emily. Great to be here. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.